broadly. So this morning, I'm going to do this very ambitious thing where we, we want to jump into the book of James and make sure that we are, we're going to start by looking at James 5, which is the last chapter of the book of James, do a little bit of an overview and see some things that James is pointing out there, but then use that as sort of our biblical lens to look at what's going on in the world um, and I guess our, our posture, our approach as Christians. Some stuff that's actually, I think, really has been very, very topical uh, for us even here in Brisbane. Um, so I'm going to try and sweep all of that together, um, hopefully make you laugh, make you cry. Um, mate, hopefully not make you cry, uh, not in front of me anyway. But I want to jump into the book of James and a little bit of revision, just so we're doing that thing where we try and understand the context and where James is coming from. I want to mention a couple of things. It might, we might have mentioned this before about James, but I'd like you to keep these things about James and about the context in which he's, this book is written sort of in the middle of your mind because there'll be, once we mention these things, hopefully you'll be able to see some really significant things. Or, or it's like the, the depth of truth, truth in what he's writing about will, will become even more vivid. So, fortunately, we've got a selfie there of that James took of himself. We have no idea if that, that's um, sort of Gandalf James. Um, the first thing that's probably, it's just an interesting fact to mention about James is his name wasn't really James. Um, actually, the most in the original language, the, probably the, the, the truer translation is, is Jacob. Um, but we call him James, uh, that's his nickname, so we'll, we'll keep going with James to avoid confusion, but that's just an interesting little point. Now, James, Christian tradition and, and scholars, I think, agree here broadly, James is considered, well, is the, the half-brother of Jesus. Well, so the writer of this book is broadly accepted to be the half-brother of Jesus. When I say half-brother, Mary and Joseph um, had, um, had James, as opposed to Mary and God. <laughs> so that's the half, it's not that, it's not that Joseph, I say that because you, you would be embarrassed how long I kind of thought maybe Mary and, jo Mary and Joseph didn't make it when they would refer to James as a half-brother. But it's that sense in which he is the, um, the, the son of Mary and Joseph. And there was also Jude, there, there may have been more than that. So James um, was actually understood that as the, really the first pastor or leader of the first Christian community in um, the first church, I guess. Um, and it's really significant because the other thing that's very important is that James is considered to be just about the earliest or the earliest letter in the New Testament written. And it's really quite, it's happening when James is writing this and talking to the community, it's kind of happening if you think about Acts as the, the history, the, like a Luke wrote a, a history of what was going on, it's sort of in the middle of Acts. So it's AD, about AD 50, which is really very recent after Jesus' you know, ministry and then death. And so this community is formed in Jerusalem. And so it, it, you know, James, who actually we believe, are, again, scholars would say, came to faith a little bit after, was originally rejected or Je Jesus was sort of rejected by his family, but then he came to faith and became sort of the, the first um, and known to be a very prominent leader, known for his wisdom. And we see this in James. You can see there's all this earthy wisdom in the book of James. And he was known for his wisdom. He's known for his, for his leadership as well. Um, it's written to a broader audience. You know that thing I say, maybe regularly if you've been around, where I'd say when... 
for instance, or particularly when we're uh, looking at the, the letters of Paul, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, I say that thing, that this scripture wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. And that's very important when we read, particularly the letters of Paul that start with a city, because there was a very specific first hearers and first context. And it becomes even more true when we understand what's going on in Ephesus, what's going on in Corinth. James, I mean, that's just a good principle in Scripture in general. James is a little bit different because it, it, he isn't, he's, he's speaking a little bit more broadly to sort of Christians, but it is really helpful to understand the backdrop of the early church. And this is what I want you to keep in the middle of your mind. And you see this theme coming through. And that was that it was a great challenge for that first community. The circumstances, and we talked a lot about this, but the circumstances outside of the um, that community were really set against faith to the point where it's really quite amazing, the Christian faith. It's supernatural that the Christian faith, with all of the opposition, that it survived. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So James, it's very similar to Revelation as we've been looking. There's an intent by James to say, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to, be, if you're going to do this discipleship thing, if you're going to walk in the way, this is the kind of faith that's going to survive. So so we have this theme that we've been seeing that comes through again and again. This is real faith. This is living faith as opposed to dead faith. He's not saying these are the things you need to do, which sometimes people have kind of had a bit of suspicion towards the book of James because it reads like, well, you could read it if you don't understand this stuff. Here's the things you need to do to be called a Christian. And it's like a works, we use that term workspace faith. Well, James is saying, no, 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 this is what, these are the actions that will authenticate the fact that your faith is real and conviction. And you're going to need that kind of faith if you're going to survive in this world as a Christian. Because the, the, that church, fragile, gathered together, was being persecuted from his, the Jewish rulers. So Paul was Saul at this time. And he was like the head Christian hunter. Now, he was Jewish. Out of his, his um, Jewish tradition... This was an anathema. This was something to be eradicated, these ragtag bunch of uh, Christians, followers of the way. But then also, the Roman Empire was against them as well. So they, they had this great opposition um, where they had to be really careful about where they met and how they met. And then add to that, not too long later, it was a great famine that came um, and there was uh, poverty. And so because they were really at the bottom of the social rung, they were really outcasts, the Jewish, um, the Jewish rulers would use their power and influence, and this you will see this come out in the bit we're about to read. They used their power and influence to sort of persecute and, and keep, even though that they were Jewish Christians, they were part of the Jewish culture, keep them on the outside of the, the culture of the day and all of the sort of requirements within the Jewish faith for people, for you to be, cared for if you were poor if you you know if you were um sort of downtrodden and downcast it was almost like they didn't apply to those jewish christians and so the, the jewish leaders used their power and influence to actually make their, the circumstances of their life even harder in the middle of a famine and poverty now keep that in your mind because you will see that come through and when they, this is where james is talking broadly but he's also talking out of this um, situation James is, and here's the, the other thing I want you to keep in mind, James is really concerned, this idea about what kind of faith will cause you to endure. What kind of faith? If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't do it lightly. 
it, it just won't survive. It won't survive this environment. So James is really concerned and throughout the book, he often, the, a word that is um, translated as perfect, he talks about a perfect faith or a kind of, now that is not like got all the answers right. It's not sort of perfection in the way in which we understand. It's like it's whole. It's integrated. And so James has this thing where the way you carry your belief and fellowship of Jesus needs to have an, in, an internal integrity that is whole so that the outside matches the inside. And if you don't have that kind of faith where you don't need to tell me what you believe, you just need to point to it. That all, all, remember when we talked about the, the tongue and the words and it's like out of the heart the mouth speaks. It's like there's something inside that will and we're going to come back to this, it bubbles up and comes out and it's true and it's potent and it's real. You need that kind of faith, otherwise you're really kidding yourself. It's kind of what James is saying. This is the, and he's really concerned with this idea. The circumstances of our world are inhospitable to the way of Jesus. And so you need a real faith, not a convenient set of opinions based loosely around Jesus. You need that kind of faith. And that is one of the themes that comes through and again and again. And it's set in really hostile times. And this is important. We've done a few things. This has been a theme that I really feel like, you know, God's calling not just us but the church back to a time because it was really, it was more than inconvenient. It was inhospitable to carry this set of convictions and belief about who Jesus was and the way he wanted to live in that time. And then things changed and we've talked about how down the track a couple of centuries later there was a Roman Empire, Constantine, who had... A, a conversion people doubt the authenticity of his conversion i don't think we need to worry too much about that let's, let's say it was real but as a result of that it was like a marriage between faith between the church and state and we are living in a time where there's a great divorce going on and it's uncomfortable because that's all we've ever known as the church centuries and centuries of where it was the conditions were made easier to follow Jesus because it was like embedded for, for good reasons and for right reasons. It was embedded in the education system. It was embedded in the legal system. It was embedded in the health system. It was embedded. The idea of the, the Judeo-Christian kind of worldview was what we built the West on. And that's been the water that we breathe. No, you don't breathe water. You get the idea. And that's just, that's been the environment where it was actually, and then <clears throat> at its worst, it was like not just socially acceptable to be a Christian, it was actually advantageous. There were perks to it. It was to be on the inside. Now, anyone notice we certainly don't live in that time any longer, but we're still nowhere near what was going on in the early church. There's maybe a trajectory we need to pay attention. And so now, like ever, never before, understanding the kind of Christianity, what was going on in the early church before the, the, the world changed? What was going on? What was the kind of faith that meant that actually this fragile faith not just survived but flourished? Well, James is going straight to the heart of that. Revelation goes to the heart of that. And that's why it's like, he who has ears, he who has ears, pay attention. So, Let's read James 5, and I would love, I've got three slides here, I love when we read scripture from within the midst. Who would like to, 
And it just also means I can, my voice can take a break and you can take a break from my voice. Who'd like to do some reading? Great, thank you, Tom. If you do one, and then uh, someone to do the second. So if you go through the first one, someone to pick up. Great, thanks, Chris. And one more. One more, one more, one more. Thanks, Em. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, great. So, bang, then over, I'll give you that one. And then we'll go. Okay, let's go. Fantastic. So you see those themes in there coming through and particularly um, you see the, the thing about the, the suffering and, and the endurance and the faithfulness and much of James or the, the intent of James is to talk to the early Christians and say, again, this is the kind of faith in this environment and increasingly you're going to need to have to, to carry, uh, you know, when you go on a long walk, you start with a and you've got like a heavy weight, a bag, it doesn't really matter for the first 200 metres how you're carrying that, right? But then after a while, if you've got a knapsack that's got like a really thin strap, after a couple, and we've got some very committed hikers here, and I'm really not the one, I'm clearly out of my depth talking about this stuff. But, I mean, J James does ultra marathons. If you're carrying, you take that water, anything you carry, you've got to carry it well, right? Because after 50K, any slight... It, it feels like a, a heavy weight. And so the way we carry faith, there's a sense in which it, didn't, it hasn't mattered as much or it doesn't matter as much as it does when we, are, when we have opposition in faith. And so we can carry it as an opinion. We can carry it loosely because there's no, real, no big deal. Increasingly, and I don't think this is a massive... I, I think God's in this, folks. Well, I've said this before. Increasingly, being a Christian is a heavier weight to carry. So we need to carry it a certain way if you're going to go. Otherwise, people, what's happening is people are going, you know what, I might just put that down. Because of the way in which they carry faith and live faith, it's like, well, really, this has just been a convenient opinion that's been a subject of how I grew up or some, you know, a, a rally I went to once or whatever. And I, I don't have judgment there. I think actually that is good for everyone when you go, you know what, I'm not carrying it internally. I carry it out here and it's heavy. It's difficult. So I might just put that down. James is saying, if you really are feeling about following Jesus, you need to carry and have a posture and walk in a way in which you can, particularly in times of difficulty and challenge and opposition, where you can walk with it over the journey. And that's what he's concerned. So this rather cryptic thing here at the end, but most of all, brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything. Just say a simple yes or no. So you're not... He's saying, be that kind of person. Don't get all flowery with your prayers and you might have heard, like, by Jupiter I declare that, you know, they'd make all these oaths on different gods. Don't be. Don't carry your convictions like that. Just, this is what I believe. This is my yes. This is my no here's where he's talking about that internal consistency of your faith. If you say yes, we'll be able to tell that you meant yes because we'll see something. If you say no, we'll be able to tell. So forget all the carrying it in a sort of a big deal kind of way, very Jesus-like, you know, think about the, the woman praying, the, the woman, you know, and their offering and the way in which the Pharisees would make a bit. Don't be that kind of Christian. Don't be that kind of follower because you won't be able to carry that very far. 
not in this culture. Be someone who carries it. So th- this is James's concern. This is, this is what he's sort of um, speaking to here. You might be familiar with Brennan Manning. You might have heard this quote before because it's a bit ubiquitous. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds, simply finds unbelievable. Have you heard that before? Brendan Manning was a um, Franciscan monk in the 70s or 80s. Um, but th- that is just, you know, there's a, a beautiful elegance to that where instinctively I think Christians and, and non-Christians go, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's really true. We know, we know that to be true. And this is, this, is re- this is giving voice to what James is saying. There's a way in which we live out faith that's so, there's something happening in you that's so real and so potent, it just bubbles out of your life. And so when James talks a lot about the kind of actions and, and the, you know, he talks a lot about care for the poor, and he talks a lot about the way you speak and all these external actions, he's not saying these are the things, you, these are the boxes you need to tick so that you get into heaven. He's saying... You'll be able to do an inventory on how well you're going because if your life is producing these actions, you've got that kind of faith. Jesus is clearly doing something in you. Something is bubbling up out of you. And so it's like an audit. Is this what it looks like? Because make no mistake, the rest of the world is doing an audit on your faith. They're hearing what you're saying. Now, I I think there's just so much. I think we are returning. There's some more cultural headwinds for us in faith. And um, I have to believe that it's not the devil necessarily. It's perhaps, uh, I think there's, you know, there's all sorts of things. But perhaps the Lord is saying to his church because there's a pattern in throughout scripture where God would allow things to happen so that a remnant, so that the potency of the church would be returned or God's people would return. I think that's going on at the moment. And I think he who has is, we just lean into that. Maybe whinge a little less about it. And just say, well, maybe there's something to learn here. There's something good going on. This has been the idea again from Jade's. James is so into this. Remember when we started off on this tangent a few weeks ago? One of the most bizarre openings in Scripture. Consider it pure joy when, when you experience trials and tribulations. And the, the idea we talked about there is because God's up to something. Because God is doing something in these times. There's something f- fermenting. Now, I'll use this phrase because I've been having this conversation um, with lots. And my cousin, who's a, also a, um, a pastor, um, and he was, uh, he's also a, um, he's a great thinker and reader. And so I kind of, I like to be around people who are a lot smarter than me. It's not hard. Um, but we were talking about this, and he gave me a book that I've been reading. And straight away, as soon as he said the title, I was like, oh, I'm so interested in, in this. And I've been, had a little bit of time this week, so I've been... I'm still in the midst of going through this book but already been able to, you know, it was just so relevant to this scripture this week. Um, this is what it's called. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. You might not be able to read the subtitle. The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire by a guy called Alan uh, Crider. Now, he has gone through, what he's gone through and th- th- is to say, what was going on there? as it says, the improbable rise. This shouldn't have happened because of all of the opposition. What was going on? And his methodology 
There's another famous book, I, I know I've quoted it before and Josh has referred to it, um, or a number of books by a, a sociologist called Rodney Stark who wrote a number of books where he used like um, tools. It's even, I'm not exactly sure where he's at his faith. Certainly when he started this project, he wasn't coming to it as a pastor or a Christian. He was coming as a sociologist and at best maybe, I think I understand, of sort of cultural faith but not really Christian. But as a sociologist of religion, he's saying, this doesn't make sense. Can we understand why this group of, small group of um, persecuted, it was basically a sect, of a Jewish sect, became this dominant force in culture? And so he uses sort of sociological um, tools. Kreider goes through and he says, his methodology is to look at, and there's three main ones in particular, of what's called the early fathers now i'm actually really glad josh is not here because josh loves this stuff he's all about so much so he named his kids after the early ignatius athanasius they are the early church founders the 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 fathers and so what Crider has done is said well these these guys who were right there at the start and who were writing things we've got their writings from the midst of this period what were they saying that was going on in the church can we understand anything and I think this is it's so valuable for us to understand because like I said I don't think we're anywhere near I think it's insulting to the truly persecuted church in our time and the persecuted church there to talk use the word persecuted the way we do I I think it's insulting however there's a trajectory going on there's a divorce where it's it's not nowhere near as convenient or easy so I think now than ever what's the kind of faith that survives well this is what Alan Crider looked into and he came up with this phrase, the patient ferment, the patient ferment of the early church. Now again, the idea of fermenting is when you take a number of ingredients and you put them together and they start, something happens and, and something bubbles up it ca- and it becomes potent. So I mentioned before, my grandma used to brew ginger beer. When, and before my mum and dad, so it was my mum's mum, before my mum and dad were married, um, my grandma was a complete teetotaler. And so my dad went around and, would go, and she would say, oh, I have some of my ginger beer. And, you know, the first time dad went, took us, it was like, oh, okay, um, one glass is going to be enough. But he never had the heart to tell grandma because she would have been scandalised that she was brewing something that was... Dad, Dad said it could take the paint off the walls. It was that strong. <laughs> it became the fermenting. She just let it ferment a little bit too long. Uh, and the, the, the potency. So that's what happens with fermenting. So there's that. But it's a process that you just can't, it doesn't do it straight away. It happens over time. And so Crider is saying there's something going on inside believers and inside the community of faith that made something potent bubble up and pour out. It came from the inside out, not the outside in. In fact, the outside was trying to do the exact opposite. But it was those conditions that made something bubble up. Now more than ever as the church in the West, we've got we to gotta listen. What was that? What was going on? Crider says this. It's not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight, that should be carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. Because they, there was no big public crusades, there was no 
God TV channel. There was no 96.5. It was, in fact, it was really difficult for you if you weren't a Christian to get into a Christian worship service because they would literally put, if you're an elder, your job was to be a bouncer on the doors to keep out the, you know, um, Saul and his mates who were looking to, to find the church and persecute it. So it wasn't their worship services and their great media. And I'm not, I'm, it's easy for me to be flippant about this and I don't mean to be. But it, it wasn't their, the worship experience that drew people. It was the fact that these Christians were living questionable lives. What is going on? They're saying things, but they're living them out. And Critus says, it was, he uses the word habitus. So it's like habits. But he's saying they're reflexes and ways of life that suggested there was a different way to perceive reality that made the Christians interesting, challenging and worth investigating. I love this idea of habitus. The reason he uses a word, from my understanding, of habitus rather than their habits, it's this idea of a reflex. It's like what happens because there's something inside you that you just do. It's a reflex. What is your reflex when something happens and that tells you what you really believe, what's inside. So it was like their reflex when they came across people who were poor. Their reflex was generosity. People observe that. Wow, that's an interesting reflex. It matches what they're saying, but it comes out naturally. Their reflex when they came across people who were sick is we're going to pray and believe that they're going to be healed. That's our reflex. That's what we do. Because something was so real and they were living this James faith. Well, it wasn't James faith. They're living a Jesus faith. That James saying, this is the kind of faith when there's such a little gap between what you say you believe, your convictions, and what you do and what you live out. And so uh, Critus says, this is like their habitus. Now, the way he observed this was to look at these, the writings and the teachings of these early Christian leaders not, that are outside Scripture. And one in particular, oh, sorry, Acts 2. This is what Luke observes, isn't it? At the end of Acts, when in Acts 2, he's described this incredible, the birth of the church, this amazing movement, and he sums it up by saying, here's what was going on. And Acts 2, uh, 42, all the believers devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, to prayer. He just goes on and explains a whole lot of things he saw. A deep sense of awe came over them. The apostles performed miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared money with those in need. They worshipped together, met in homes. He's just describing what people are seeing. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And by the way, each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Luke's just done the same thing. Here's what was their, here's were their habits, their reflexes. They were doing this, and people were just fascinated and intrigued. And despite the great opposition, the church was growing. <clears throat> Another couple of selfies. Justin Martyr, who was one of these fathers, he's one of the three main ones that they looked at. Um, uh, he looks like one of those people, um, or n- none of them. But Justin Martyr was, again, very early. If you look at the date, circa 100 BC. So it's, this is really very, very early. He's observing what's going on. And he, he wrote, and again, this is, um, this is in the book. It's sort of summarised. It uses this language of observing the culture of the time. 
and said the reflexes, the cultural reflexes of the time, of the Roman culture and the, the, the growing world, he talks about a habitus of unfreedom characterised by addictive practices in four primal areas. Um, addictions enslave you. When you get addicted to things, you become captive to them. And so this is um, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, it was observing saying, there's really these addictions. This is the habits. These are the enslaving things. And he talks about four things. Sexual ethics that prioritise gratifying lust. The pursuit of power and influence through occultic practices. So people using spiritual forces to get power and influence. The competitive accumulation of wealth and possessions and violence and xenophobia, big word, which is hatred towards people of different tribes and customs. Now, it's going to be such a struggle to get any sense of relevance from those four things to the world we live in today. I mean, isn't that, isn't that stunning? This is what he's writing in the time and saying, this is the problem with the culture of our time, that people are addicted to these four things. Now, quick side note, you can actually use Christianity as a vehicle to pursue those things. You can, and it is possible and it is done, and possibly if we're honest, we may have even done this ourselves, where we can twist scripture and understanding to continue to pursue all those four things, but just use Christianity as a vehicle. So just always be aware as we point at a culture, that thing where there's fingers pointing back at us as well. What Justin Martyr says, the thing that enthralled people and why it grew is because people saw this, this um, quote here. Uh, Their reflexes and ways of life suggested there was a different way to perceive reality and that made Christians interesting. So Justin Martyr says, well look, as this is what's going on in the culture, they observed Christians who were doing the opposite. They were talking about this but they were living, they harnessed their des- harnessing their desire through faithfulness and mutual submission in relationships. The sexual ethic was different, completely different to what was going on. Instead of pursuing power and influence, using a cult of power over, actually the, the way of following Jesus seemed to be about, you know, like quoting, you know, it seems to be about submission and the, the last shall be, the first shall be last. Sharing, we saw that in Acts 2 before. Living in community, Christian community. This was being lived out. And Justin Martyr at the time observing it, and this is reflected, is saying this is what people were so enthralled with because of what they were living out, what they were embodying. Now, we do, we do live in a time, and increasingly, where it feels like, and in the last couple of weeks, and we don't have, um, I'm conscious of time, and we, don't, we might revisit some of this in a little bit, but in the last couple of weeks, think of the, the pursuit of... Um, you know, the whole thing around Centrepoint School that blew up was a massive deal that happened at the same time as this religious freedom uh, bill was going on at the time. And there's so much complexity in this. Um, and at the same time as that, uh, there's also been these freedom uh, protests and marches as well. Now, in all three things of these issues that are all sort of overlapping circles, there's really valid reasons for Christians to say, hey, to say, to say something. And, uh, and really good reasons. I've been on the board of a Christian school. I can, I, and I, I, that issue that they've tried to navigate through, we may from 
distance, kind of say that could have been or should have been done differently, should have been done all, you might think it was done perfectly fine. It's very complex. But there was really valid reasons. In all three of these, there are really valid reasons why people should look to protect and enshrine the freedom for any, anyone of faith to live out their faith in an integrous way. My concern has been the posture in which not necessarily people involved directly. I don't, I don't have access to that and I'm not here to judge. It's just challenging times all, all around. Particularly with that issue at Centrepoint with the Christian school and their um, approach towards transgender students. It wasn't actually even really about transgender students at all. But towards the position of the school, towards their sexual ethic, it's, if you have a look, it's like the first one and the last one were in opposition, were in tension. That's the great challenge we live in. How do we live out the first one and the last one? How do we contend for a sexual ethic that we think is based on godly principles, but create a community that says anyone and all are welcome? That's a tension point. And if you don't have to, all I would say is if you don't have to figure out on a daily basis what that looks like and how to live that in your world, and what, you know, I mean, we all got to do that in our relationships, but do that on behalf of an organisation that represents... Be thankful. <laughs> Be thankful and pray for the people who do. My concern was not with what was happening each other. My concern was, is with Christians. Because then there was a pylon from our culture, right? And then there was a pylon from Christians. And that's what made me uncomfortable. That's what I think. I, we just need to start reading James more. We need to start reading Revelation a little bit more. Because demand, it's a patient fer- ferment something bubbling up that will take time and so maybe you know what maybe christianity in our world today in our city is not that potent at the moment maybe that that quote by manning is the thing we need to say yeah that's really true and if this is true which i believe it is if this observation that actually there needs to be something that bubbles up the idea of faithfulness and patience is something we've got to sort of take a hold rather than yelling and demanding. And my concern has been the posture that we take when we demand things now. I I just don't think that's the way of Jesus. There is a role for people to say things in the public square that advocate for a Christian ethic. So hear me well. But what is our role in the pews? It's to live a life that's so potent, that's so bubbling up, with living out of faith, that people go, what is going on? Now, maybe that's going to take, maybe that's going to take a few years. Maybe that's going to take a few decades. Would it be worth it? Are you up for the journey? If it takes a few decades for the Christian church to say, you know what? Unless I feel like I've been called into these areas, I'm just going to walk it out. I'm just going to let something bubble up in me that is so potent and so real that the, the gap between what I say I believe and what I do is so small that people are just going to ask me, actually, I'm just going to do that because I'm just going to be faithful in following Jesus. What if that, what if I told you now that's going to take you the rest of your life before you see the goodness of God in the land of the living? Would you do it? Or is that too long? Is it too heavy to hold an uncomfortable set of convictions when you know you're going to have to walk into a workplace, a university, a school, and it feels like the headwinds are coming against you and you really want to talk about the persecution, though no one's really going to kill you? Is that a bit too uncomfortable? Maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good starting point for you. Maybe that's a good litmus taste. Is there something inside you 
that will bubble up and that will be so potent. Can we be a people that when we gather together, like an Acts 2 church, there's something inside us that's so real, our reflexes. When we see people of different tribes and customs, rather than wanting to make it really clear they are not like us, we say, how would we open our doors? How would we demonstrate a generosity and a love that would make them not so conscious of how different they were, but of how much they were loved and valued? Can we be that kind of culture? Because I reckon that'd be pretty potent. But what if that takes a while? Are you up for that journey? Get the band to come up. What if that's going to take a while in your family? I know some people in this room who are walking this out with incredible integrity and patience in their family. You know, and I'm just going to love them. I'm just going to, well, what, what, if, what if that takes? What if God was able to say, you know what, that journey is going to be 20 years, but at the end of it, there's going to be such a turnaround and openness. Are you up for that? They're the sort of things where we go, well, maybe if it takes that long, I'll feel like every moment of it was worth it. But I feel like that's the kind of, that's, that's the kind of biblical faith that James is encouraging us towards. Something's got to bubble up. As we finish that idea of fermenting, of bubbling up. The guy who wrote this book, it was um, from a, a stream of the faith. He's a Mennonite, conservative, theologically conservative, um, sort of socially, not Pentecost, really not Pentecostal. But I think, when I think about how the Pentecostal movement was started, it was a bunch of people waiting in an upper room for something to bubble up. And they were there without timelines. They were just going to say, we're just going to pray until the Spirit moves in the way in which we see Him move in the early church. I suspect, I don't know. I wasn't there. I suspect if we were to ask those people, we'd say, how long were you prepared to take? Did you have a timeline? No, no, we were just going to wait. Sometimes we can have that posture of just faithful patience. I'm going to wait, whatever it takes. And God moves really quickly. That's great. But when we come in with timelines and expectations. So here's the starting point. What kind of faith? Are you carrying your faith out here in the way in which it's getting heavy in this culture? It's, getting, it's, it's inconvenient to hold certain views and convictions. You're not going to be able to carry it like that. It's got to be in here. And then as you come before God, as you cultivate your own personal worship time, something bubbles up. And then collectively, I long to be a church where something bubbles up in us. That we're living out of this site. Because I think there's a world that's ready to experience something. I don't think people have got a problem with that kind of faith at all. At all. Let's sing and then we'll... Let's spend a couple of moments. Why don't you stand up? conscious of time we're going to finish soon but as we do we're just going to create a bit of space if you want to stay in a place and just again percolate in the spirit let God bubble up you're welcome to do that if you need to go and get on with your day you're always free don't forget your kids take them with you we love them we're not going to keep them but otherwise we want to spend a, a few moments um, before the Lord uh, before we finish this morning thanks Charlie